welcome to Immigration Review, your weekly source for immigration case law updates and insights. I'm your host, Kevin A. Gregg, back again to review the week's presidential immigration cases, rummaging through the decisions so you don't have to. This podcast is sponsored by Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, also known as KKTP, a law firm where I'm also a partner. Whether you are facing an immigration obstacle, a serious injury, or a legal issue in your business, KKTP will aggressively protect your best interests. This podcast is also sponsored by DocketWise, an all-in-one immigration forms and case management solution trusted by thousands of immigration lawyers across the U.S. I really like DocketWise. It makes immigration applications easy by allowing the clients to provide information through simple online questionnaires that are shareable by text or email and available in multiple languages. Not only that, DocketWise provides a comprehensive group of case management features, including invoicing and calendaring, secure messaging, task management, and a lot more. You can learn all about DocketWise and receive a 10% discount on your subscription by heading to docketwise.com immigration review so they know we sent you. And as always, this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So, without further ado, let's start the review. Two decisions adverse to non-citizens this week, from the Fifth Circuit and the former Fifth Circuit. With the holidays upon us and the courts slumbering slightly, I went all in on the second case. I also thought it time to give some holiday cheer. A million thank yous to the podcast's highest level patrons, Brianna Carey from Oklahoma, I believe, Derek Upchurch in Southern California, and Nadan Milosevic in Florida. I am honored by you. To the podcast's longest supporting patrons of Eunice Scott, Lorraine Marte, Michelle Marty Rivera, and Fula Alabunmi, your continued support means the world. And to all the other patrons, including the newest patron out of Boise, Maria Andrade of Immigrant Justice Idaho, thank you, thank you, thank you. By the way, and among other things, Maria coordinates what is easily the best immigration conference in all of Idaho. Happy holidays to all, to every listener and to every supporter. I see you all in the download statistics, and it truly means the world. That includes even you, Attorney Ramba Aquino, outside of Los Angeles, likely washing dishes while listening to this very episode and his own personal shout-out. Thank you, everyone. Before getting to the cases, I wanted to talk a bit about Capital Good Fund. Millions of families seeking to improve their immigration status face financial barriers due to the high cost of legal services. Nonprofit Capital Good Fund is working to make these resources available to all, especially those who would not otherwise qualify for traditional loans. Certified CDFI Capital Good Fund is partnering with attorneys to provide the financial services that families need. They offer affordable financing with no closing fees or down payments for those working with attorneys to move their case forward and to get attorneys out of the accounts receivable business. To learn more about the program, email immigration at goodfund.us or call 866-584-3651 and tell them who sent you. 
First up is Gebregs of Hair v. Garland, published by the Fifth Circuit on December 19th, 2022. I hope I have pronounced that name correctly. This case is about the persecutor bar to asylum, and it arises, as many of these do, in the context of the country of Eritrea. Because the country of Eritrea has an indefinite and mandatory military service requirement. It's also commonly acknowledged that the Eritrean military persecutes and tortures people. Ipso facto, those forced into the Eritrean military, meaning all Eritrean citizens, I believe, might at some point find themselves in a situation where they are ordered to persecute or torture someone, or at least are in a position to observe it. That's kind of what happened to Mr. Gebrezabher. He was forced into the military at 18 years old and assigned to a highway checkpoint. Four soldiers would guard the checkpoint while others would do chores. But it's Eritrea, and quote, once a week to twice a month, security forces passed through the checkpoint with prisoners who were considered traitors for attempting to leave Eritrea without permission. These prisoners were usually barefoot, bloodied, and had their arms tied behind their backs with rope, end quote. Mr. Gebrig Zebaher believed these prisoners were likely later persecuted, tortured, and even killed. The prisoners had their own guards. Mr. Gebrig Zebaher was a young man, and all he did with his three other guards when he would be watching was watch the prisoners march by. After a year of this, he was transferred to another unit. And then in 2014, he, quote, was imprisoned for three months for overstaying leave, and he was forced to do hard labor, end quote. After his sentence, he got himself smuggled out of Eritrea and eventually to the United States, where he applied for asylum and related relief in immigration court. The immigration judge and the BIA denied, finding that by watching the prisoners pass through his checkpoint, Mr. Gebrigzebaher was barred from asylum and withholding of removal under the statutory persecutor bar, essentially finding that Mr. Gebrigzebaher had persecuted others. An emotionally charged issue. The INA bars from asylum in relevant part anyone who, quote, assisted or otherwise participated in persecution, end quote. A pretty broad definition, it seems, and under the BIA's 2017 decision in matter of DR, which is matter of DR the second, actually, the, quote, test for assessing the applicability of the persecutor bar considers, one, the nexus between the non-citizen's role, acts or inaction, and the persecution, and two, the non-citizen's scientier, end quote, or mental state. Even though Mr. Gebrezabaher was a young man who was himself forced into service and who would have likely been killed by his multiple fellow guards present had he ever done anything except watch the prisoners go by, quote, by his own admission, he prevented the political prisoners from escaping, furthering their persecution, even though other guards were present, end quote. True, courts have held that the persecutor bar doesn't apply where an asylum applicant, quote, only engaged in legitimate law enforcement activity, and DHS then failed to establish a connection between the legitimate activity and the persecution, end quote. But that wasn't the case here to the Fifth Circuit. The court here believed that Mr. Gebrezabaher, quote, impeded the escape of the persecuted prisoners, end quote. And that, to all tribunals involved, is sufficient to potentially condemn him to his own persecution and torture. But this decision does not discuss a lurking issue that is always on my mind in such cases. (music) 
haven't read Matter of DR in a minute, and so I can't recall whether it discussed whether the persecutor bar applies when the persecution is committed under duress. Unsure if that was argued or not in this case, but it was definitely at issue in Matter of the Goose, another Eritrean persecutor bar case that's been to the Supreme Court, BIA, and even Attorney General multiple times. Attorney General Barr wrote a 36-page single-space treatise on the issue to explain that no matter how horrific the coercion or duress, the United States doesn't care and will bar asylum seekers from persecution if they persecuted or harmed others. Or indeed, even if they assisted such actions under duress, as seems to have occurred in this case. But Attorney General Garland vacated Attorney General Barr's Nagus decision last year and should be issuing his own decision soon which I would have thought might have stayed the Fifth Circuit's hand from issuing its decision in this case. If such an argument was made, of course. Looking forward to Attorney General Garland's Nagus. And that is Gabrigza Beher v. Garland. That brings us to the former Fifth Circuit. Edwards v. U.S. Attorney General, published by the 11th Circuit on December 23, 2022. This case is about matter of Thomas and Thompson and sentence modifications. Strap in. Mr. Edwards is from Jamaica, and to the court, quote, traveled a long and winding path before he ended up here, end quote. I'll do my best to summarize. Mr. Edwards became a lawful permanent resident in 2003, but pled guilty to the Georgia crime of family violence battery in violation of OCGA section 16-5-23.1 in 2012. He was sentenced to a year of imprisonment, but he was permitted to serve all of it on probation. Still a term of imprisonment under immigration law, meaning that as it was one year, the conviction is potentially an aggravated felony under INA Section 11843F, a crime of violence. Which of course is what DHS alleged in removal proceedings in 2015. Mr. Edwards fought that charge, but alternatively filed applications for asylum and related relief, claiming membership in two social groups, quote, relatives of opponents of the pervasive gang and corrupt situation, end quote, in Jamaica, and quote, returning Jamaicans who have spent lengthy periods of time in industrialized, developed, affluent countries, end quote. After some back and forth with the BIA, the IJ and the BIA found that the conviction was an aggravated felony and a particularly serious crime, and denied Convention Against Torture Protection on the merits. But okay, fine, there's a lot more stuff with that. Because during the first appeal to the BIA, Mr. Edwards got his Georgia State Court conviction to be, quote, modified from 12 months probation to 11 months and 27 days probation, end quote. In light of the original sentence, this new modification would seem to take the conviction out of aggravated felony territory. Now, the motion papers made in state court were pretty clear that the whole reason for the modification was to avoid these immigration consequences. But under binding BIA precedent at the time, IJs and the BIA needed to defer to such modifications. Matter of Thomas and Thompson, vacating that precedent wasn't issued until October 2019. So the BIA remanded to the immigration judge, and the IJ followed the law. But the IJ interpreted the modification as only applying to Mr. Edwards' probation and not to his term of imprisonment, 
Which, to be honest, and based on what the conviction was the first time around, makes no sense to me. Seems like the probation and the term of imprisonment were completely interconnected. Regardless, the IJ reissued the aggravated felony particularly serious crime finding and the order of removal. The BIA affirmed. So Mr. Edwards got another modification that made clear what seems to clearly have been the intent of the state court the first time around. The 11-month and 27-day probation was in lieu of actual confinement. It was the sentence of imprisonment itself, and it was not simply separate probation. And so, pre-matter of Thomas and Thompson still, Mr. Edwards moved the BIA to reopen and remand again. And the BIA did. On remand again, it seems that the IJ didn't believe that deference was required to the second modification, deeming it a clarification. And so the IJ did not defer. The BIA affirmed. To the 11th Circuit it went, but oil got cold feet because, to me, all of this seems wrong. It seems that it really was a modification to under one year of a term of imprisonment. And so oil requested a remand to the BIA, which the 11th Circuit granted. And then, Attorney General Barr issued matter of Thomas and Thompson, thereby permitting the IJ and the BIA on remand not to give weight to the modifications and the clarifications and all the things that happened to Mr. Edwards' conviction. So the BIA did not. Now, said the BIA, the modification had no effect for immigration purposes, because under matter of Thomas and Thompson, it wasn't done based on a procedural or substantive defect in the original conviction. And now we're back at the 11th Circuit with matter of Thomas and Thompson directly before the court. All right. I will just stop to note that this would have all been permitted in the 7th Circuit based on the court's recent decision in Zaragoza v. Garland, episode 133, holding that matter of Thomas and Thompson, even though a proper decision, cannot be applied retroactively, and that courts must apply pre-Thomas and Thompson precedent to pre-Thomas and Thompson sentence modifications, clarifications, etc. What did the 11th Circuit say? Well, it did not cite to the 7th Circuit, but like the 7th Circuit, it held that the INA's definition of the phrase term of imprisonment, used at INA section 101A43F for the aggravated felony, and incorporating back to the actual definition of that term at INA section 101A48, is ambiguous, thereby permitting attorneys general, such as Attorney General Barr and Attorney General Garland, to fill in that gap through precedential decisions like Matter of Thomas and Thompson, or precedential decisions vacating Matter of Thomas and Thompson. In fact, and although not yet done very often under the current administration, but done quite often under the prior, quote, the Attorney General can review and overrule BIA decisions upon his own initiative, end quote a power that, quote, Congress has vested in the Attorney General, end quote. Important to remember, quote, that is true even when the Attorney General adjudication is used to announce new policy after years of contrary precedent, end quote. Okay, okay. So matter of Thomas and Thompson was an appropriate thing for Attorney General Barr to do. But was it a reasonable decision? to vacate all that prior BIA precedent regarding sentence modifications and clarifications and things like that. If not, the 11th Circuit owes the decision no deference. The 7th Circuit has said it's reasonable, the only court that I can recall to have addressed this issue. 
And similarly to the 11th Circuit, it was a reasonable decision by Attorney General Barr. For example, the INA itself counts suspended sentences as, quote, terms of imprisonment, end quote. And the 11th Circuit has itself defined the phrase term of imprisonment to, quote, include all parts of a sentence of imprisonment from which the sentencing court excuses the defendant, even if the court itself followed state law usage and describes the excuse with a word other than suspend, end quote. It's all getting pretty weedy, but suffice it to say, when Attorney General Barr said that post-conviction modifications that are done for immigration purposes actually have no effect for immigration purposes, well, the 11th Circuit believes it a reasonable interpretation of the INA. Not actually too much analysis by the 11th Circuit. Really, the court is simply deferring to the Attorney General. So for those counting at home, that's now two circuit courts that have deferred to matter of Thomas and Thompson as reasonable. What about retroactivity? Well, the 11th Circuit summarily held that it was no problem to apply Matter of Thomas and Thompson retroactively. To the 11th Circuit, Attorney General Barr was simply determining, quote, what the law had always meant, end quote. And that holding on retroactivity of Matter of Thomas and Thompson, as I kind of mentioned, creates a circuit split with the 7th Circuit. As we now have a partial circuit split on matter of Thomas and Thompson, it seems like a perfect opportunity for Attorney General Garland to enter the fray. As Mr. Edwards didn't argue that the elements of his Georgia offense met or did not meet the crime of violence definition, that means that the BIA's final decision that his conviction is an aggravated felony stands. That makes it a particularly serious crime for asylum, but it looks like withholding of removal was actually still on the docket before the 11th Circuit. At some point, I guess the IJ and BIA did not find that the conviction was a particularly serious crime for withholding purposes. But on this issue, too, the 11th Circuit affirmed the agency. Or I should say, the 11th Circuit held that it could not even review the issue. That is, Mr. Edwards' substantive eligibility for withholding of removal. And this, too, seems like a big deal to me. This is all about jurisdiction. The 11th Circuit first held that whether someone was more likely than not to be persecuted on account of a protected ground is a factual question, not a mixed question of law and fact. Fair enough, circuits are kind of all over the place a bit on that issue. But then the 11th Circuit held that because of that, and because of Mr. Edwards' criminal conviction, INA Section 242A2C barred it from reviewing the factual issue of whether Mr. Edwards was eligible for withholding of removal. And that is where my head explodeth. This dispute implicates the 11th Circuit's important jurisdictional decision in Malou v. U.S. Attorney General and the Supreme Court's recent decisions in Guerrero Las Bria and Nasrallah. And sure, Guerrero Las Prias says that the courts retain jurisdiction over mixed questions of law and fact review, and sure, the 11th Circuit just said that this issue is purely factual. So Guerrero Las Prias really doesn't have anything to say. I get that. But Nasrallah permitted courts to nevertheless review factual findings underlying the denial of Convention Against Torture Protection because, and here's the important part, the jurisdictional bars at the INA bar review of factual findings tethered to final orders of removal, and the denial of CAT protection is separate from a final order of removal. With CAT, an IJ issues an order of removal and then either withholds or defers it. 
The removal order remains intact and isn't challenged before a circuit when only cat protection is at play. Such a dispute is simply about whether to withhold or defer the final order. That's what Nasrallah held. And as I've mentioned on the podcast for two years, the exact same logic applies to withholding of removal under the INA. There, too, there is a final order of removal that the non-citizen is asking a court to withhold, just under a different legal provision. This is an issue that some courts have flicked at but generally have left open, including by Nasrallah itself. Well, not the 11th Circuit. Kind of. If I'm reading the tea leaves, I bet that the panel sees that Malu and its prior precedent is implicitly overruled by the logic of Nasrallah, but the panel doesn't believe that Nasrallah, quote, was clearly on point enough, end quote, for the panel not to follow its pre-Nasrallah precedent on withholding of removal under the INA. The 11th Circuit is limiting Nasrallah to cat protection only, even though it's the same logic. Bah humbug. So a review of withholding of removal is out. Now, the 11th Circuit obviously can review factual findings for cat protection, that's Nasrallah on point, but here the court saw no error to the BIA's denial. To the 11th Circuit, this sentence aptly sums up Mr. Edwards's claim, quote, Cat does not extend so far as to allow a person to obtain cat relief merely because he was attacked by a gang of neighborhood thugs whom the police were unable to apprehend, end quote. Mr. Edwards's family experience and his fears of return to Jamaica don't fit into the cat box, said the court. So Mr. Edwards lost a big one for non-citizens, with lots of important arguments expertly made but rejected. Alas to my 11th Circuit brethren, alas. Here's a final practice pointer on matter of Thomas and Thompson. When getting state court convictions modified, amended, clarified, vacated, etc. in this post-Thomas and Thompson world, make sure you're citing to the correct procedural or substantive or constitutional defect state statute in whatever jurisdiction you find yourself. After all, the problem in this case was that, quote, the state court gave no reasons for modifying Mr. Edwards' sentence other than stating that it had considered his motion. Mr. Edwards's motion, in turn, was entirely about his immigration situation and the harsh effect that removal would have on him and his family, end quote. All noble aims that the state court here believed warranted modification, but immigration law no longer cares. Cite to and rely upon the correct state court procedural or substantive or constitutional statute in your post-conviction motions before the state courts. And that is Edwards of a U.S. Attorney General. So there you have it. You're all caught up with the past week's published immigration cases. I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what we do and want to become a patron of the show, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash immigration review, or click on the link in the show notes. 
And if you're interested in an official Immigration Review CLE certificate for five credit hours, email me at kgreg at kktplaw.com with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows you've listened to. Also, feel free to email me with questions, comments, or anything at all. And follow the show on Instagram and Facebook at Immigration Review. And send us a tweet at ImReview. That's I-M-M Review. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review. Thank you.